Trauma. It's a word that you've probably heard thrown around quite a bit, but what is trauma, really? My name is Shanna White, but you can call me Shan. I'm a psychologist, and defining trauma is a pretty big part of my day-to-day life. But my job goes beyond providing a dictionary description of what trauma is, because that's just the tip of the iceberg, as they say. No, my job is to define trauma, to highlight its impacts, and most importantly, to help those who've lived through it to figure out how to thrive beyond it. I've spent years working with children, adolescents and adults trying to guide them through the process of recovering from complex trauma. Needless to say, I've seen and heard a lot and now you will too. But first, a trigger warning. This podcast deals with some pretty heavy topics including domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, crimes against children, self-harm, sexual abuse, multi-generational trauma, and suicide. If you don't think you're in the right headspace to deal with any of these topics right now, please cut yourself some slack, take a deep breath, and come back another day. I'll be here. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and elders on all the lands on which we work and meet. I appreciate the significant place Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders hold, and I identify them as the first Australians. I value and celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture and future and I'm committed to supporting reconciliation through speaking the truth, pursuing justice and creating opportunities to heal together. I pay my deep respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present and acknowledge all Aboriginal children, young people, families and staff who I provide services to now and in the future. I embrace and commit to the spirit of work and self-determination, empowerment and reconciliation. Welcome back to the Trauma Tales, everybody. Today we're joined by Billy. Hi, Billy. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really good. Can you tell us a little bit about a time in your life where you experienced trauma? Yeah, no worries. Um... I guess the story that I'm telling you is about a time I had a secondary trauma after leaving a DV relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, I left a relationship with an 18-month-old child who um, we decided to get out. And then after that, we went through the family court system, which was the trauma itself. Um, I just ran up down the stairs, so I'm like puffing. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) putting the dog out um so we went through the family court system for a period of 11 years um there was three separate court cases and all of them were really different starting in south australia and going across to new south wales uh even though it's the family federal circuit court it was all really different experiences um in each state yeah so with um, three, three. Two, one in South Australia, two in New South Wales. Okay. So how are we different judges? So you have one child? Yes. A son? Yes. How old is your son now? He's 12. He's, he's 12. So he was a baby when you left. Yeah, he was only 18 months old. Wow. And how did it start? So you were in South Australia? Mm-hmm. Okay, how did it sort of start? So you'd left and what happened next? Um, so when I'd left, um, it 
wasn't amicable. I'd had to flee to leave. Um, the uh, other party or douche canoe or whatever you want to call it was, um, was not amicable in trying to organise arrangements around caring for our son um, and was really unsafe when he did have him in his care um, for a number of different reasons. Um, what we found was that there was no way of coming to an agreement between ourselves and so I took it to mediation. Mm -hmm. um, he refused to participate in mediation and just continued to draw it out by not showing up or rescheduling, which meant we couldn't then get a court date in. Oh, because um, you have to go to mediation before you can go to court. They won't see you in court until you've gone to mediation. So we so had to have... No, so there was no, like, um, routine or schedule or, like... No, and what would happen was I was trying to put one into place um, and Dad would have him and then just not return him or not pick him up or um, just turn around and go, oh, I'm, I can't drive, so you've got to come and find him wherever I am. Um, oh, my God. Nothing that's stable for an 18-month-old, that's for sure. That must have been really scary. Yeah, it was. Um, in those early days, so probably when my son was about two, maybe nearly three, he would come home and say things like, my dad said next time he sees you he's going to pour petrol on you and light you on fire. Oh, my God. So we were fortunate in that those types of conversations often, often happened when we were, like, at the GP or somewhere for something else. So they were reporting, which was great. Not always, but it meant that there was a third party that was hearing it that wasn't just mum said, the child said. Um, but my son's voice wasn't heard until last year. Nothing that he said was considered um, not of relevance, what's the word, as in viable information because it was coming from a child, reliable information. So he's saying all these things in front of, like, independent third parties, like he's saying in front of doctors that dad's making threats to mum and other people are reporting it and it's not listened to? No, because, because it wasn't Dad saying it directly. So Dad was very clever in towing the line as far as what would mean he was breaching orders once they were in place or what the police considered um, something where an AVO could be put into place because he wasn't mm. directly threatening um he would do weird and creepy stuff like leave things at our house or yeah um, yeah you know let us let us know that he knew where we were or things like that but um nothing the police could quite put a pinpoint on in the early days show up at school when he wasn't meant to be there and there was no court orders in place yet because court was being dragged out by him who wouldn't attend the mediation yeah. and stuff yeah so, so it's like it's almost like so we hear about this and I have people that I see in clinic where it's, and we don't talk about it a lot, is when women 
leave or when anyone leaves a domestic violence relationship, the it's it doesn't end. Like there's so many more ways that they perpetrate that control and and that abuse in and it's not like they use the system to actually continue to abuse their partners definitely for me I think it was almost worse after I left yeah Uh, while I was in the relationship I was being uh, isolated financial control I had no control over my own money he had access to everything I thought he was paying bills but it was being spent on other things so when I actually left I um left with a massive debt. He had a bad credit rating when I went into the relationship, so everything was put into my name. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I left, I found out I had a huge amount of debt and a blacklisted credit rating. Um, I And then, you know, bad rental records and all those things that go along with that. Mm. Um, I'd lost a lot of my support networks because of the isolation. Um, Of course a lot um there was the then the situation that when we went to mediation and it was being drawn out so no court orders were being put into place I think we had to attend I attended three sessions had to do a course on parenting so it's Mm -hmm. one of those basic courses that they do about mum's house dad's house I think they called it in South Australia I'm not sure if it's the same it's basically separated parents how to put your child first yeah and didn't attend any of those things um continued to refuse 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 I think he got six options to decline attending mediation and each of those had maybe three months in between so does, there's yeah when you make these sort of appointment i know like when people ring and make an appointment they it, it takes a couple of months before they actually get to come in and see me so it's not like you can reschedule for the next day and like, legally all parties need to be given multiple options to be able to attend so hmm. while we were trying to get some rules and boundaries in place so that my son could continue having a relationship with his father but in a safe way Uh, he was continuing to draw it out. And at this point in time, I was being told it was in my best interest to continue um, for my son to have a relationship with his father. So out of fear of being persecuted for not letting him see my son, he was going to dad and then being exposed to better things. So So how, how was your son through all this? Because he was growing up. Mm. Um, well, you can imagine when you get told things like a dad's um, dad's going to take photos of you with his new crossbow and you can go home and, and show mum what she's going to get killed with, how that affects a child's development and anxiety. The anxiety levels were massive. When he started um, childcare, there was a lot of reports made around his behaviour and he yeah. struggled to transition between activities his fear of dad showing up. Um, It got to the point prior to the court orders being put into place that um, the police came to our house and said, we don't have enough to put an AVO in place, but we suggest you pack up and move house and don't tell him where you live. Oh, my God. And change change schools. And then dad will be forced to go to court and get orders put into place. 
but they wouldn't give us an ABO to protect us. This episode of The Trauma Tales is brought to you by Dr. Olga Laval and Associates, award-winning providers of psychological services, including telehealth and phone consultations, empowering people to make meaningful changes to their lives. For more information, please go to www.olgalaval.com. So can you explain, so an AVO, um, for anyone who's sort of not in Australia, is an apprehended violence order and it's instituted by court when there is a threat of significant violence from one person to another. But from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not involved in in legal proceedings Mm -hmm. at all, um, there has to be a level of... um, like the police have to say, yes, there is evidence that this person has threatened or has hurt or we have seen or heard something. And it can be um, activated by the person, like the victim, or it can be activated by the police themselves. Correct. So because often um, when there's um, acts of violence, the victim through fear of, of the repercussions won't actually try to get an ADO themselves. So police can put it on themselves if they want to. Yep. So in those early stages, we were trying to activate one mm-hmm. in South Australia um, where we kept getting told that the perpetrator was towing the line um, and until he actually caused direct threat to me or my partner um, rather than through the two, three, four-year-old, um, it wouldn't be considered as... a a direct threat. Uh, The fact that he was making 40 or 50 phone calls to my phone a day uh, wasn't considered uh, significant enough as harassment Um, and I was advised by the police that it was my job to go and change my phone number. So the onus gets put back on the people fleeing to protect themselves as opposed to the perpetrator to cease their poor behaviour. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think that's a common theme. Yeah. I'm curious why you think that's the case. Um, I think between the police and the court system, it's that delay in catching up what we know is happening with domestic violence relationships or family violence and what we know needs to happen and change hasn't quite filtered down into those old school systems yet that, everything's policed and governed by. Mm. So, so do you think, like, I know a few police and I've, I've had this discussion with them and it's it's a struggle because in their eyes they're like, we want to, we, oh, my God, we actually really want to step in and, like, tell this guy and, and do something, but mm. we're so constrained by what we actually can and can't do. We know that they're abusive. We know that what they're doing is wrong and we know that they're dangerous. See, there's this, this perception that, and I'm, I'm sure you've come across it as well, that, um, you know, there has to be a, a significant level of physical violence regularly and frequently to for there to be that real fear involved. Mm-hmm. But then you know, look at cases like Alison Baden-Clay. He never laid a hand that we know of, but he, he murdered his wife um, after years of, of what we now understand to be domestic abuse and, and domestic violence because violence isn't just a physical act. Violence yeah. is psychological and emotional and financial as well. And we can't, 
we haven't figured out a way to police that. We haven't figured out a way to... It's not measurable as far as the police are concerned. And for mm-hmm. us, while there were threats of physical violence and harm, it was the emotional um, and psychological abuse that was the most significant. And it was about that that fear and the threat and the showing up at your house, showing up at school, taking your child. Um so it was just ongoing and it built the, the closer we got to actually getting into court, it built. Mm. And every time something would happen, like we would get a court date, um, we would see that cycle of escalation and then best behavior right before court. Yeah. And then another explosion. Yeah. So it was just this ongoing cycle that we could see happening and felt like we had no control over. Um, so at that point we'd, fled our home with, within 24 hours with the police saying you need to get out. So we packed up and left. We moved to an apartment that was fully um, like a gated community. So you had to buzz in, buzz out, had video cameras um, and had changed our son's school. Um, and then court started to roll around and, and get moving at this and point. That- that would be when he he toe the line and, and completely behave and be really good. Yeah. yeah. So when they know that they're being watched. Definitely. It, there's that um, yeah. intensity. They have to behave to sort of prove to the court, well, look, I was really good. Nothing's happened for months and months. It's like, well, yeah, but it, it has happened so many times. And like I say this to people all the time, the best predictor of I absolutely believe in change, but the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour. Mm-hmm. And even um, during, we had family assessments and stuff done for court, Mm -hmm. uh, which is done by an independent assessor. Mm -hmm. Um, And even the assessor was really clearly able to pinpoint that dad was saying things like, well, what I've done in the past is none of your business. What my thoughts are on that is none of your business. It's not relevant. It's not relevant. Clearly is relevant. Mm. Um, But no capacity to have that self-awareness about why it's it's relevant so when we've actually got into the family court system there was a couple of tricky things to overcome both my partner and I work full-time um so not eligible for legal aid remembering I'd walked away with a huge amount of debt and blacklisted as far as my credit goes so there's no no going anywhere to get a loan for court um, and he doesn't work or when he does work, does it under the table um, sporadically, so was able to access full legal aid. Mm. Um, so there's another factor that, that made things particularly tricky. Um, in the whole process it was he played off as the victim and that I was trying to alienate him from his child. Um And the, while I produced all the evidence that we had of the unsafe behaviour, it felt like his side was able to just go, we deny, but not actually have to prove anything. Um, Sorry, I need to pause for just one second. My power's being silly. No, you're okay. This episode of The Trauma Tales is brought to you by Cognitive Behavioural Education. 
providing training and supervision for people working with people who experience trauma. If you work with people, you know how challenging it can be sometimes and how you can end up having the wrong end of someone's day or having to deal with their trauma. CBE's training and supervision services can upskill and support you and your team to manage, de-escalate and thrive in these situations. For more information, go to www.cbe.net.au. Okay, sorry, we're back. So yes. he was able to just play the victim to, to alienate, sorry, continue. Yeah, to continue to say that um, my my purpose was that I was alienating the child from dad, which was not my intention. My intention was for my son to be able to have a relationship with dad but in some way that was safe mm. and had boundaries. Um through that court case, we were so new to the system, so unclear about how it worked. We felt so pressured to agree to what legal advice we were given. We um, also had this trauma on trauma of being put in a safe room at the courthouse because I was fearful of seeing him and it actually made threats about what he would do if he saw me in the courthouse. Um, so that anxiety of sitting in court is massive already, but then being in a in a little box with no windows and having the negotiations happen. Um, it came down to at that time we were trying to leave the state, we were trying to get away, um, and the judge gave us the okay for that. Um on the fact that we signed consent orders and basically the consent orders were the restrictions we'd put in place for dad, which was no drug use, no pornography in front of the child, no sharing a bed with the child, et cetera, et cetera. Standard parenting things. Um, dad had the option to um, move interstate as well, which had been something that he'd considered because he had family interstate um, and he followed basically but is in a borderline state. So he's up in Queensland while we're in New South Wales. Right. Makes it tricky again when you go back to court. Yeah. Um, what happened then was we relocated and were told we didn't, it was ordered that we didn't have to share our address. Um, he knew where our child was going to school um, and had parental access and then, every other weekend mm -hmm. um, with some pretty strong restrictions in place for while he was in dad's care. Um, all of those restrictions were or undertakings were completely ignored and dad continued to do as he pleased and breach those orders. But because they were happening with the child and the, who polices it at home, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've only got the word of the child who's not really being believed anyway. Correct. Oh. Um, we would have cases where it would be um, the child coming home and saying, oh, Dad left me out the front of this pub and went inside to play the pokies. Um, he got into a fight with the security guard out the front because they wouldn't let me go inside to the pokey area. Um and I was really frightened because I thought Dad was going to bash him. 
And this is a little kid. Like, this is a little human. Yeah, so we're in primary school now. And you you can't do anything about that. You can't go, well, you don't have to go, mate, because you've got orders that say you have to go. Correct. And so went back for legal advice again because the family court orders clearly weren't being followed. Um, We had some really great supports in place for um, our son. So he had some really good play therapy. He had some really great, um, like a child psych. He had great strategies around school. The teachers were fantastic and understanding. Um, But that ended up almost playing against us because when we went to court again, they were like, well, you're, he's, he's not really that at risk because you've got all these great factors in place for him. You've got all these services. You've got all these things happening. The onus is on you to keep him safe and you're doing those things. So he's not that at risk. So, which I disagreed with, obviously. Um, mm. But what they then said was, you, I'm a rule follower and so things like court orders I take seriously as I think you should. That's probably, you know, what they're there for. Unfortunately, quite often perpetrators don't have a lot of regard for them. Mm. Um, we were told by the solicitor that if we continued to send him, uh, the court would see it that, we were admitting that he was safe when he was with dad. Um, so we chose to withhold him because he was, yeah, I know, because he was... boggling uh, But we knew he was unsafe, but we were so fearful of being um, called out on breaching court orders that we were sending him, but it was getting more and more unsafe to send him and the risks were just getting higher and higher and higher and higher. Uh, so we chose to withhold him. This is when the second court case came around until we could have the family court orders tightened up and now that we had a bit more understanding around the court system, what we could actually negotiate, look for, push for, mm. let the judge make decisions on. Um, we had a different judge again because we were in New South Wales now Um, and the experience was horrific. Yeah. The first court hearing, the judge hadn't read any of the court application, any of the family assessment, any of the most recent threats and why we were there or the police reports. Um, and with Dad sitting in the court, he said, well, this mother clearly has no regard for the law or these orders that get put into place. Maybe I'll just award Dad 100% parental rights and custody. Oh, no. Oh, my God, you must have been sick. And, yeah, and Dad wasn't even applying for that. Dad didn't even want that. Um, so that's where I go, you know, it's all all your outcome can be so different just dependent on who you get. It's supposed to be based on the law, but, you know, obviously you have different judges, you get different outcomes. Um, So that continued on. We had some tightened up court orders put into place, but it was very victim blaming. Um, The previous court orders had stated 
dad had refused to have um, clean drug tests in the previous consent orders was like, no, not capable to do that. Um, And our solicitor had said, you need to agree to a reduction so that we can get it across the line so that you can move into state. So we agreed. We had no idea that, you know, it might look bad on us down the track. So we just, we just wanted out. We, when we went back to court, the judge said, why would you agree that it's okay for your son to go somewhere where someone's using drugs? Uh So the blame was then put on me because I'd agreed to it in the consent orders. Um, So this whole shifting of the responsibility being put on the people who are trying to keep their children safe, not on the person who's doing the things that are wrong. Mm. So that continued. Uh, We had the court orders tightened up a little bit Um, and we continued again. He was seeing Dad still every other weekend. Um, Things were tightened up, handovers were done at police stations, that sort of thing, a little bit more supervised. Dad would continue to breach that, you know, not go into the police station, stand down the street stand over the car, you know, all sorts of things, towing the line though. Um, At this point we had a completely separate phone just for phone contact that was happening that had to be scheduled so that it was twice a week, otherwise Dad was ringing 40 to 50 times a day. Holy shit. Yeah, and if you didn't pick up, the more aggressive it would become. so that continued then and how was your son through all of this like he's still a little kid totally um the anxiety levels were huge we had um early signs of of self-harm to self-regulate so he would Mm. peel his skin off his face he'd pull his eyelashes out um he'd be biting his fingernails down so that the beds of his nails would be bleeding Mm. school would report lots of struggle between transitions yeah one the one thing that was good for him was school and that they would say it seems to be a safe place like it's quite neutral he'd come home and he'd want to protect me so he'd be worried about telling me about some of the things that dad had said yeah um where we were really lucky because we did have good support services in place and he has a really great relationship with my partner so that was kind of like a third party for him that was a little bit removed from mum and dad to be able to confide in and talk to um but yeah no not doing okay not doing okay at all would have huge emotional meltdowns wouldn't be able to self-regulate would regress massively um we would see almost like one two-year-old behavior uh, when he returned from dad's we'd see bedwetting um we would see we'd have to set up like a transition station when we when he came home initially so we would set up almost like toddler activities so so at this point now it's maybe in year three year four Mm -hmm. um and we'd have lego or play-doh and all the things and he would need half an hour an hour just to sit and play with those things before he could even speak to us yeah oh, um, poor little thing 
and often he would internalise and hold things and something might have happened but it would be eight to 12 weeks later that he'd go, oh, hey, so when I was at Dad's this happened and he'd been sitting on it for months. Mm. So you can imagine how that impacts sleep and growth and how do you learn at school when your brain is full of all those other things already? Yeah, you can't. But our brains are not designed to, to be able to deal with that. Little people's no. brains are definitely not designed to deal with that sort of stuff. So how how is how is your son now? Where he's is doing, it, where is it at? Where is yeah. everything at? So um, he's doing amazing now. We went to court a third time. Um, he was in year five at school. And there was a couple of things that happened. Dad was escalating again. Dad was showing up at the school. It would take Dad three and a half hours to drive from where he lives to the school. Um, would come to the school unannounced. Um, would be aggressive to the staff at the school, demanding information. Would ring up and make wild accusations. Um, and then... The school went into, not related to dad, but the school went into a practice lockdown. You know how they do for the schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like fire drills and bombs, yeah, yeah. Um, evacuation yeah. stuff. I remember doing them at primary school. Yeah. So uh, just to put it into context, the school he was at was a small regional school and there was only 23 kids in the whole school. Oh, wow. That's so tiny. Yeah, two, two classes. Mm -hmm. junior and, and upper primary and the principal who was also his teacher later said to me I'm so sorry like we know about his background but we had to do this training drill and we had to not tell the kids what was happening because we had to be able to record what their response was oh, and no. how they followed the instructions oh no so the lockdown they went into is the same type of lockdown that they do if there's an active shooter in the school or, yeah. you know, someone with a knife. Um, he went into complete meltdown, kept That's saying, fine. yeah, kept saying, it's my dad, isn't it? My dad's here. Is he to shoot everyone? Is he oh to shoot God. me? He's going to kill us all. Um, tell me, tell me, it's my dad, isn't it? So that kind of opened up a bit more about some more of the things that dad had been saying he was going to do. And, and he'd been quite, my son had been quite open in coming home more and more regularly saying dad knows where we live. Um, dad's got friends that watch us. Dad's got guns. Dad's going to come and shoot us. Um, dad tells me these things all the time. So we still, because he's a kid, no one's listening. Not listening. So remember, Dad's not supposed to know where he knows the area we live in, but not our address. At the time, we lived on a farm property that was quite isolated mm -hmm. down a dead end dirt road. Mm. Um, Dad showed sounding up, sounding like a horror movie. Yeah, honestly. Dad showed Dad showed up. Um, Dad has a very recognizable and very loud car came to the front of the property and continued to do burnouts out the front of the the property and, and make some threats and drove off. It was at that point the police came that they did finally put an ABO in place. So that took us 10 years to get an ABO in place. And that was only because he'd been ordered to not know our address and they could 
say, you know, you clearly had no purpose to be there, you live in Queensland, you don't just drive past on this street, it's a dead-end dirt road, um, there was evidence of the burnouts out the front. So you can imagine what this is doing to my son at this point in time. Yeah. He, uh, was he in the house? Yes, Oh, my God, so he saw all this. Yeah. And yeah. this was just after the thing at school? Yes. So they happened, like, right next to each other? Oh, my God. Um, Poor little guy. So. So you're probably, like, sorry, I didn't mean no, to interrupt, but. No, no, Like, you're not only, like, trying to deal with your own trauma, but you're literally watching your little person go through this and you have no control about stopping his trauma from occurring. Like, you can't stop it. And And trying to not be, trying not to feed my anxiety onto him as well, like being hypervigilant about not giving him mine but being so aware of his own and watching his dad trigger him in ways that he would trigger me without me realising prior to him even being born. Mm. Um, so watching it all unplay again for this little person was just horrific. Yeah, wow. Um, so after that AVO was put into place, um, can't remember what the saying was that the police said but it was something about people with court orders tend to breach them pretty quickly like the statistics show Mm -hmm. yeah they do once they've got them they breach them we had two breaches within a month um and it was that feeling of a piece of paper is not going to keep us safe Mm -mm. we went back to court for the third time at this point we're 100k in debt with court fees um so that was fun and the um, onus is always on you like they, mm-hmm. they can he's just still got keep... full court aid he can draw it out as long as he wants he knows he's draining the, our funds financially he knows he's draining us emotionally he i think he's hoping that you know we'll just go it's all too hard um and at that point i i was at that point i didn't have any fight left in me. I was just like, this is this is our life. There's, what's the point in going back to court again? Um, the judge is just going to say that we're nitpicking. Um, I don't think I can do it again. I My mental health was really struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of my fear around all of my life being spread out on a table for a judge and the, the court to review... Uh, I was too fearful to go see a psych. I was too fearful to take the medication the doctor was suggesting that I take. Um, I wasn't doing any of those self-care things because I was had it drilled into me that it would be viewed as, as that I wasn't able to be a capable parent and I didn't want that coming out in court. Yeah. Um, so that kind of continued to snowball things. Uh, we got into court for the third time and this time it was based around the breach of the ABO. and at this point my son was 11. So for the first time ever he had a voice in court mm. and we had a judge who was very different from the previous judge um, 
who I think all judges need to be cloned of. And <laughs> they turned around and said, I'm not doing anything with this court case until I speak to the child and did an independent interview with my son. Um, that still got drawn out again. We were all interviewed separately. Dad came, dad had a meltdown, dad left, um, continued to draw things out, didn't participate, but my son was given a chance to talk. And the court case was brought back to the courts because at 11 he was able with by his own choice to go and make a statement to police. And in this case, Dad had said, I'm coming to your house, I have a shotgun, I'm going to shoot you all in the head multiple times at close range so your brains are hanging from the ceiling. Oh, my God. Um, so at 11 he made a statement to police and then fell into a heap, as you can imagine, because he was so concerned that his dad would kill himself after he found out that he'd made the statement. Um, third time round, though, with the child's voice included in court, the judge saw it for what it was and dad's complete lack of participation and not attempting to do anything to, to continue to have a role in his life called for full parental responsibility to be given to me and he's not seen his dad now in nearly a year. Um, We always wanted to maintain some type of relationship with him. Um, I think it's really important, but while he can't be safe, it's not an option. Um, Safety has to come first. It doesn't totally. like, absolutely they need to have relationships with parents if possible, but if their safety is in question, the answer is no, and it should be exactly. a resounding no. Exactly. We can't be calling ourselves, you know, child-focused if we're gambling with their safety. It's just not, mm-hmm. it's just not a thing. It's not responsible of us at all. So how, how are you guys now? It's been a year. Um, it's it's been bizarre. We've seen some. We're doing really well. We saw some really interesting behaviour in my son. You know, it went regressed again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, it was like he could breathe, and he just let out this huge sigh. And he's just come into his own. He started high school this year. He has all this confidence, he is making all these friends, these relationships before that he didn't seem to be able to to make or keep is just a whole new thing now. It's wow. just like he's been able to go, huh. but also we're probably doing the same because yeah. for the first time ever we also moved again. Um, so Dad doesn't know where we are. Um, but... It just meant for the first time ever we could kind of breathe and sleep. Yeah. Oh we weren't goodness. running at complete hypervigilance all the time. So how is that self-care going for you now and that looking after yourself and taking medication and seeing the All those things, and- <laughs> all those things. And do you know what? In hindsight, had I had um, the information I had now, I had no experience of the court system. I had... I was still 
quite entrenched in that family violence and that psychological abuse even after I'd left. Um, But I now know, like for anyone that's going through the same thing, those things aren't viewed poorly by the court. They're actually viewed in favour that you're doing those things for self-care, that you're being a better parent by looking after yourself, that um, managing those things and having evidence of managing those things is a good thing, not not something to be frightened of. Um, but at the time, no understanding yeah. or awareness so, around it. So before, before I let you go, um, what would you say, Billy, to somebody in any stage of the process? What would you tell them? If you were if you could talk to you at any stage of the process before, what would you say? Uh, there's always a little bit of fight left, even when you feel like there's not. <laughs> <laughs> even when you feel like you've been trodden on and there's no more fight left, there is always a little bit more. Um, and at the end of the day, it's about keeping our kids safe, isn't it? Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Trauma Tales. That was amazing. I've well, it's been a ride. <laughs> it's been a ride. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today on the Trauma Tales. Now is a good time to go and do some self-care, especially if this tale resonated for you. If you'd like to reach out to the Trauma Tales to be a sponsor of the show or to come onto the show, please email the trauma tales all one word all lowercase at gmail.com this podcast is a production of shanna white psychology